right, amen. I'm really glad to see you this morning. Hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And, and uh, I want to say, as you're turning there, as always, I'm super thankful for Pastor Dylan and Pastor Joe uh, taking the reins fully while I was gone last week. I hope that you appreciate them. I hope that you appreciate not just their ministry, but I hope you appreciate the fact that no matter who is behind the pulpit, this pulpit, on any given week, at any given service, on any given week, you can be confident that you will hear the Word of God preached. You can be confident that you will not get a self-help speech full of human wisdom. You can be confident that you will not get a political stump speech full of red meat and hot buttons. You will get a man of God preaching the Word of God. I recently heard a preacher named Christian Lawanda say this. He said, the Spirit of God will use the Word of God through the man of God to build the church of God to the glory of God. Amen to that. All of that. Right? It is our desire that First Baptist Church Harrisburg be a place where that is happening. Where the Spirit of God uses the Word of God through the man of God to build the church of God to the glory of God. May it be so here in this place. Pastor Dylan preached last week, and his text was 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And I was super excited for him to preach that text because he often, often challenges us to be, quote, bold witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. So this text spoke about being ready to give an account for the hope that is in us. And I thought, man, this is right in his wheelhouse, and indeed it was. Interesting, though, as he studied the text, what really came to the forefront as he talked to me about it was the command to, quote, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And Pastor Dylan rightly concluded that this, sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts, will make us fearless and we will give a defense of the hope that is in us. He asked at one point in the message, is your hope bigger than your happiness? Is your hope bigger than your happiness? That is a great question for all of us to ponder. He also talked about how if we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, our tone, our tone will be affected. We will be gentle and reverent as we engage the people around us. And finally, he noted that when we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, we will be zealous for good deeds. When we see Christ as holiest, when we see Christ as highest value, as most admired, as most esteemed, we will then live with holiness. And when we live with holiness in this broken and sinful world, we should expect some hostility. We will receive some hostility, some suffering, some persecution even. But if Christ is our treasure, if he is our hope, if we have sanctified him as Lord in our hearts, we can face that trouble when it comes with great confidence. Well, this week, we're going to start a two-week journey through what is easily the most difficult text in 1 Peter. Some would even argue that the text that we're going to look at over the next couple weeks in here is maybe, if not the, most difficult passage in the entire New Testament. And as I reckoned with that, I thought maybe I should have scheduled my vacation for these two weeks and not the week we are gone. John Piper said of the verses that we'll cover in the next two weeks here, he said, I'm simply not sure what these verses mean. And when I hear, when I hear John Piper say something like, I think, well, there's no hope for me then. The great reformer Martin Luther said of these verses, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. So the level of difficulty over the next few weeks is high, but we're going to approach the text nonetheless, because we really do believe here that all scripture is inspired by God. 
but all of it is breathed out of his mouth. And we really do believe that all of it is profitable to us for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God will be adequate and equipped for every good work. We really do believe that. And so we're going to cover that hard text. Uh, 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 my friend Bud this morning said, are you, are you ready for this? And I said, I chickened out. I'm not going to cover the hard part today. I'm going to explain that. So while there is much that is difficult in verses 18 to 22, there is some in those verses that is not difficult at all. And that's the part that we're going to focus on today. Because I fear that if I preach this whole paragraph in one shot, I will fall short in drawing your attention. I will fail in drawing your attention to the great gospel truths that are present in the first part of the text. Because it will take so much time to untangle the second part of the text. So today I want to pull out the great diamond of the gospel that is here. I want to clean it off. I want to shine it up. And I want to let you see it clearly. I want to let you see it clearly so that you stand in awe of it and that you rejoice in it. And then next week, with that in mind, with the clarity of the gospel in mind, we will launch into the difficult portion of the text that comes, all this business with Noah and the ark and baptism next week. So to say it a different way, if I tried to preach all of this, which was my original intention when I came back from vacation, I think the clarity would be sacrificed in the process, no matter how, job, how good a job I do with the difficult parts. And, and I really think that we all have this like weird tendency to be drawn to the more difficult parts, the more confusing parts of God's word. And in our curiosity to understand those things, we tend to miss out on the main thing. And, and if you don't believe that, I will give our study of Revelation to you as exhibit A of that. Early on in our study of Revelation, the questions people were asking were these. Who's the beast? Where's the dragon? When's the great battle? And all of those things... When the whole book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What, what a shame it would be if we understood all those other things clearly and missed the Lord Jesus Christ. And we could do the same thing with this text. And so if I was writing a commentary on 1 Peter, I would introduce this section, the part where I comment on this passage today, with this. If you turn to this chapter first, shame on you. Go back to the beginning and read the whole thing. Like we have this kind of morbid fascination with these really curious things. And sometimes we can get so fascinated by those that we miss the main thing. And so I just want us to spend time on the main thing today. And we have, we have been singing about the main thing today. Like all of the truths that we have been singing are going to flow right into this text and help us rejoice over it. So before we get to that, though, I want to give you a summary of the whole section, verses 18 to 22 as a whole. This is what I think the summary is. That this is a promise. This text is a promise of salvation from the coming judgment through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ in light of persecution and opposition from an unbelieving world. I think that's what's going on in this text. It's a promise of salvation from the coming judgment through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ in light of the persecution and opposition that come from the unbelieving world. And if that's the case, this will be helpful to the church. It will be an encouragement to the church to persevere and to endure the pain with confidence, and it will be an encouragement to the church to proclaim the truth of the gospel and invite people to repent of their sins and be saved. It also serves as an offer of salvation to all who would believe in Jesus. It is an offer of salvation to use the imagery in the text to get on the ark, to come into the ark and be saved from the coming judgment, to come into Christ by faith in him and be saved. So maybe you need to respond to that offer today. And repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation before we even read the text. But let's read the text. First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22 is what we're going to read. 
And then we're going to zoom in really closely on verse 18. This is God's word. It says, For Christ, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Let's pray together. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Tell us and show us from this passage the wonder of Christ's death for us. Tell us and show us through your word the wonder of his victorious resurrection. Remind us that in Christ we have been brought to you. You have saved us by your grace, and we are forever grateful. But we also know that there are many who are still in their sins, still separated from you. Oh, Father, would you do for them what you have done for us, and do it today. Open their eyes to your holiness. Open their eyes to their own sinfulness. Teach them about Christ dying in their place for them. And give them faith to trust in Christ. Grant them repentance to turn away from sin. And save them, we pray, for the glory of your great name. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Amen. So because we're only going to look at verse 18, we're going to try to to get a hold of this diamond and look at it and see it and rejoice over it. We're going to be able to look really closely at verse 18, like like move through it just kind of one word or one phrase at a time. And then we'll get that clearly in our minds so that next week we can approach the more difficult part uh, of this paragraph. Does that sound okay? So let's start with the word for. Let's just start with verse 18 begins with the word for. And this little word for indicates a connection with verse 17 and actually some of what came before it. With texts like this that are difficult, and I'm admitting along with Piper and Luther that this is difficult, when we come to texts like this that are difficult, it's important to remember that these texts don't stand alone. They are not in isolation. With texts like this, there is always context, and context is super helpful for our understanding. And immediately we learn that this is all connected with what we saw in verse 17 last week. And Pastor Dylan told me, he said, I didn't have a ton of time to really, to really zone in, focus in on verse 17. But that's okay because verse 17 is connected to what we're going to look at for the next two weeks. And we'll get plenty more understanding of verse 17 that says, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Is this idea that it would be God's will? That we suffer is completely foreign to us, and yet it seems to be all throughout the scriptures. And here he's saying, if it's God's will that you suffer for doing what is right, like what, when we do what is right and we suffer for it, that can be God's will for our lives. Not for doing what is wrong. It's not God's will that we would do wrong and suffer for doing wrong, but it is God's will that we would do right. And sometimes when we do that, we will suffer for it. And he's going to explain a little bit about why we can do that with confidence, and we can do that with confidence because Jesus did it. Because our Savior did it. He suffered, not for doing what was wrong, but for doing what is right. 
and as such, he paved the way for us to follow after him. Karen Jobes says it like this. Moreover, it, that is verse 18, grounds the believer's willingness to suffer unjustly for the sake of Christ in the fact of Christ's willingness to suffer unjustly for the sake of believers so that he might bring them to God. Like you suffer unjustly because Christ suffered unjustly for you to bring you to God. She goes on and says the implication of the connection between 17 and 18 is that even if a Christian were to suffer to the point of unjust martyrdom for the sake of Christ, such suffering is both purposeful and victorious because death is not the final word. Brothers and sisters, death is not the final word. It was not the final word for Jesus. He died and was raised, and it is not the final word for us. Even if we suffer unjust martyrdom for the cause of Christ, that's not the end of the story, friends. The end of the story is glory with him forevermore because of his grace, because Christ died to bring us to God. We've seen a similar point about Christ's exemplary suffering in chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. Look at it with me. It says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So when we talked about that, we talked about both Christ as Savior, Christ as atonement, and Christ as example. Both of those things together, and we'll see it again in the text that we're looking at over the next couple weeks. And as we seek to understand this, it's important to remember the context and the audience. The audience of this letter is super important. Remember that this letter was written by Pastor Peter to the elect exiles who were scattered all over Asia Minor. These followers of Jesus were already experiencing opposition. They were already experiencing persecution on one level, but within a few years, it would be a whole lot worse. Like as Peter writes this letter, it's brewing, and they're facing some of it, but within 15 years, it's going to get infinitely worse. Brothers and sisters are going to be burned to death. Brothers and sisters are going to be fed to lions. Like this is the way it's going to go, and Pastor Peter is preparing them for that. Peter is writing to encourage them and equip them to live in a hostile world. And it's super important, super important that we remember the pastoral nature of this letter, especially as we move on to next week and the difficult imagery that Peter uses. It's like a lot of what we saw in Revelation. Remember when we got into some of that just really bizarre imagery in Revelation, I kept saying, why does John tell them about this to help them? How is John using this imagery to help them endure with faith the persecution they are facing. Well, we're going to need to do a similar thing with First Peter here to say, how is this helpful? How is it helpful to bring up Noah and the ark? How is it helpful to talk about baptism at this point? We're going to, we're going to notice that Peter's being a good pastor in this. So this really, part of what I'm getting at is this really fits with the whole letter. The whole letter that we've studied so far is this preparation to endure suffering at the hands of the hostile world. Edmund Clowney says, our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ is grounded in the wonder of Christ's willingness to suffer death for our sakes. We suffer for him partly because he was willing to suffer for us. 
And his suffering for us is the only hope that we've got. So let's talk about that suffering. Look at what the next phrase. It says, for Christ also died. Christ also died. Now, some of your translations don't don't say died there. Some of your translations, like mine, New American Standard says died. Some of your translations say suffered. For Christ also suffered, like the ESV says suffered. And this is because of what scholars call a textual variant here. A textual variant is a very rare occurrence when some old manuscripts have one word and some old manuscripts have another word. And fortunately, this instance, like most instances of textual variation, has very little impact on the overall statement and its meaning. All right, so track with me. We never speak of Christ's suffering alone, right? We never speak of Christ's suffering separated from Christ's death, do we? No, his death is always implied when we talk about his suffering, right? And we works the other way, right? We never speak of Christ's death apart from his suffering. His suffering is implied when we speak of his death. And by the way, the same thing works with his death and his resurrection. Like if I'm talking to you about the death of Jesus, you can rest assured in my mind, I am implying the resurrection of Jesus as well, right? Like I'm never going to only talk to you about the death of Jesus without reference to his resurrection as well. And vice versa definitely works, right? We cannot, we cannot, like literally cannot speak about the resurrection of Jesus without implying his death. And so what I mean is Christ suffered and died for us. So whether you've got suffered there or whether you've got died, you need to know that Christ suffered and died for us. But even as we handle that textual variant, there is a more provocative thing going on in the text than that. There is a more provocative thing in the fact that Christ also died or even Christ also suffered. And that is the surprising nature of Christ's death for us. It is a surprise that Jesus would die. You see, this is not what the Jews were expecting from their Christ. This is not what the Jews were expecting from their Messiah, their chosen one, their anointed one, their long-awaited Savior. They were not expecting him to come and suffer. They were not expecting him to come and die. Particularly in the first century, they were looking for a conquering warrior who would deliver them from Roman domination by military might. They were not looking for the suffering servant that Isaiah spoke of. And so, as Jesus was rejected, as Jesus was betrayed and arrested, as Jesus was beaten and mocked, and certainly as Jesus was crucified, dead and buried, many of them lost hope that he was the Messiah. They had no concept of a Messiah who suffers. No concept of a Messiah, a Christ who dies. In fact, you remember the story after Jesus is raised from the dead and he, he walks along the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples? Do you remember this? This is in Luke chapter 24, and they're like all bummed out, and they're talking to Jesus, but they don't know it's Jesus. And they have this conversation at one point in verse 21 of Luke chapter 24. One of those guys says, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. That's hopelessness. Like, he's dead. We saw them arrest him. We saw them crucify him. We saw them bury him. We hoped that he was going to save us. But he died. They didn't expect Christ to suffer. They didn't expect Messiah to die. And yet, as unexpected and surprising as the death of Christ was, we know 
that that is the very heart of the gospel. That the death of Jesus is the heart of the gospel. Part of what Paul delivered to the church in Corinth as a matter of first importance. And if you've ever been here on Easter in the last decade, you've heard this text preached. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, the death of Christ is central to his redemptive mission. But it was surprising. It was surprising to the people who witnessed it. Even to those closest to him. They didn't understand that that was the way. That was the way he would save. That was the way he would rescue. Notice also that the text says, For Christ also died for sins. Let's zoom in on that. What does that mean, for sins? Well, it means that Christ didn't just die for a cause. He wasn't just martyred for a movement. No, it's this great biblical doctrine that Jesus in his death was a substitutionary sacrifice for sins. He was a substitutionary sacrifice, an atonement, a propitiation for sins. And he was a propitiation for our sins. You know this text, Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, For all sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. you know who that includes? All of us. All of you. And all of the people you know. All of us are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. We also know that Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. Let's just stop right there. Not to get to the good part just yet. We're not ready for the good part just yet, are we? We are all sinners and the wages of sin is death. Uh, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You want that gift? Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 help, helps us make some sense of this. We are all sinners, and the wages of sin is death. God is holy, and he must punish sinners, and we're all sinners, and the wage we deserve is death. So how in the world could sinful man be reconciled to holy God? It's only through the death of Jesus. Look at Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. It says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Just marvel at that for a second. Christ died for the ungodly. And listen to Paul's logic. He says, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. One will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps, perhaps, for the good man, someone would dare even to die. You catch what's going on there? He's like, it is a rare occurrence for someone to give their life for a good guy, a righteous man. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus dying. He didn't die for a righteous man. He didn't die for a good guy. He died for sinners. Look at the next text. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for a righteous man. He died for sinners. Christ also died for sins, for our sins. Read on in Galatians chapter 3. This is, this is just everywhere in the scriptures that Christ is the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Why did Jesus die? For sins. Whose sins? Amen. You got gold star this way. Ours. I was going to say not his. Not his because he didn't have any. He must have died for our sins, which is what we read in Galatians chapter 3. It says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, 
in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He became the curse, became the curse for us. Isaiah prophesied this when he spoke of the Messiah to come. Long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Isaiah spoke of a Messiah who would come and he would suffer for the sins of his people. Look at it. You know at least this part of Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. If that didn't make sense, this next part will. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's the picture. Christ died for sins. Christ died for our sins as our substitute. Amazing love. How can it be? That thou, my God, would die for me. That's why we sing it. That's amazing love. It's amazing grace. Would anyone do that? I always ask kids this. When when I try to explain to kids the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, if they have siblings, I always say, if you were in trouble and you deserved a spanking, would your sibling ever step in and take the spanking for you so that your mom and dad would take you to Dairy Queen instead? One time, one time a kid was like, Yep. And I was like, I don't think so. Every other time, like, no way. And then I try to turn it around and say, would you ever do that for one of your siblings? No way. Jesus has done that for us. The king of kings has stepped into the place of sinners and died in our place, taking what we deserve that he did not deserve. He is our substitute. Hallelujah. So it goes on. Christ also died for sins. And then it says, once for all. Let's zoom in on that. Once for all. The paradigm of blood sacrifice for sins, the paradigm of an atoning sacrifice for sins, that was set up way back in the Old Testament. Where day after day, week after week, year after year, they offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice to cover sins and to find forgiveness. And the author of Hebrews takes that whole system up to show the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice over the sacrifices of the Levitical system. He takes this whole system up to show the superiority of the new covenant in Christ's blood as over and above the old covenant and the blood of bulls and goats. Now, years ago, we walked through all of Hebrews, like like really dug into that argument. So I just want to hit the very top of it in Hebrews chapter 10. Look at it in verse 1. It says, for the law, since it has only a shadow, only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, those old covenant sacrifices in the temple, There is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But not the blood of Jesus. Read on in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 10. Every priest 
stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's good news. That's good news that all those bulls and goats never took away sin and only served as a reminder and never cleansed the consciousness. In fact, they were only a yearly reminder of the sinfulness of the people. But Jesus, and that, those Old Testament priests, they had to do it every day. They never got to sit down. But Jesus shows up and he offers one sacrifice, one time, and he sits down because the work is done. It is done. It is finished. There is no more blood to be shed because his blood was better. His blood was best. This is part of why we reject the Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist, where they believe there is a repeated sacrifice of Christ every time they share the bread and the cup. They say the sacrifice is bloodless, but it is Christ in their minds being sacrificed over and over and over, nonetheless, according to their doctrine. No. No. We don't sacrifice Christ over and over and over again. He sacrificed himself once for all. And so we take the bread and the cup to help us remember his once for all sacrifice, not to repeat that sacrifice. And all, all the Protestants said, no, no. Not only did he die once for all for sin, notice the next phrase, the just for the unjust. This is huge. And this is a good reminder in the midst of all this good news that will keep us humble. We saw it hinted at back in Romans chapter 5 where there was this whole, one will hardly die for a righteous man. Dare, for a good man, someone might dare to die. But Christ died for us while we were sinners. The just for the unjust. Listen to the way Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The just one who knew no sin became sin for us. The just for the unjust. When we consider Christ and humanity... Who's just? Only Christ. Who's unjust? All of us. The just for the unjust. Romans chapter 3 speaks of this truth in a profound way. We've already seen verse 23 that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. The just for the unjust so that the justifier will be just. Does that make sense to you? If it does, that's the gospel. The just for the unjust, so that the justifier will be just. This is good news. R.C. Sproul says, 
since God requires punishment for sin, he receives satisfaction not from us, the unjust, but from Christ, the just one, so that God might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith. So when we sing of the sinless Son of God slain for sinful men, we are singing the heart of the gospel. We are singing substitution, and we should sing it loudly. But maybe the best part is this next phrase. He cri- uh, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. We are learning here at First Baptist to pay close attention to so that when it appears in the Bible, that little Greek word hena, which gives us insight into purpose, usually divine purpose. Why did Christ die for sins once for all? Why the just for the unjust to bring us to God? In our sins, there is alienation between us and God. In our sins, there is hostility. There is separation. We talked about the chasm, but from the far side of the chasm. And friends, there is a huge chasm, a huge divide between the sinful man and the holy God. How could we be brought to God? How could we possibly be brought to God? That's the greatest problem. We can't fix it ourselves. How can sinful man be in a good relationship with a holy God? The answer is the only way is through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's the heart of this text that we're looking at today. It's why we're spending so much time on this today. It's spoken of in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 21, that says, And although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Imagine that. Just look at that for a second. Through Christ and your union with him by faith, you are presented to God not as pitiful, sinful mess, but as holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. You were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were engaged in evil deeds. But he died for you, for your sins, the just for the unjust, so that you could be brought to God. No longer as you were, but as a new creation with his righteousness credited to your account. This is incredible. Read the last phrase. So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We're going to dive into the details of this part next week. But for now, suffice it to say that this is a statement about not just the death of Jesus, but also the resurrection of Jesus. There is more to the story than the cross. There is more to the gospel than the cross. And we must not ever forget the empty tomb. That's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul doesn't just say, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. He goes on and says, it's also important that he was buried. And it is important that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. In fact, if you read on in chapter 15, you know that he says, after he was raised, he appeared to a bunch of people, right? And if he didn't rise from the dead, we're in a heap of trouble. But he has been raised from the dead, right? He has been raised from the dead. And so there's good news for us. And read with me here in verse 15 about that good news, that victory. It says, Behold, I tell you the mystery. 
We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit in victory over sin and death and hell. And he offers us to share in that victory by faith. Oh, thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So with all of this in mind, read back through verse 18 all together. We have, we have zoomed in at every little phrase and looked at it closely. Read this and tell me if your heart doesn't just stir to say glory, hallelujah. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I say glory, hallelujah. And there's an application of this text for Christians Brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have repented and believed and are repenting and are believing, rejoice. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, because we have Christ as our Savior. We have Christ as our Savior. He has died for us in order to bring us to God. He rose in victory and shares that victory with us. He is sympathetic toward our plight when we suffer for righteousness' sake. We have Christ as our Savior. And so we rejoice and we sing. We also have Christ as our example. If Christ is our example, not only did he rescue us, but he showed us the way. He showed us the way to glory. He showed us how to live with holiness despite opposition so that we walk the hard road that leads to glory. Edmund Clowney, let me remind you, said, Our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ is grounded in the wonder of Christ's willingness to suffer death for our sakes. He is our Savior, and he is our example, and we don't ever want to separate those two things. And because we have Christ as our Savior, and we have him as our example, we can rejoice and we can endure by faith. Christians rejoice. We have Christ as our Savior, and we have Christ as our example. Friends, guests who don't know Christ, you can have. You can have Christ as your Savior. He died to bring sinners to God. He rose to share victory with them. You can have Christ as your Savior today. Repent of your sins and trust in Him. And you can have Him as your example as well to teach you what it looks like to walk His way, to teach you how to endure the hard road to glory. Repent and believe today. Let's stand and pray. Father, thank you uh, for this beautiful gospel, this really good news. Thank you for giving us time to look at it closely today. And I pray that you will stir in us as your people a rejoicing that we have Christ as our Savior, that he died to bring us to you, and that he rose in victory and shares the victory with us. Let us rejoice that we have Christ as our example, that we suffer for his sake because he suffered for our sake. Help us to walk faithfully with endurance. And we pray for friends who are gathered, guests who are among us, who are outside 
Pray that you will show them today that Christ can be their Savior. That he died to bring all kinds of sinners to God. That he rose to share victory with all kinds of people who will believe in him and repent of their sins. God, give them faith. Grant them repentance and save them. And then let them walk with Christ as their example into glory. We pray that this will happen. All of this will happen not just for our sakes, certainly, but for your glory. In Christ's name.